With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come by, check out our wares. A bunch of people have done that of late. And we're grateful for it. Um, I should say a bunch of new people have done that of late, and we are grateful for it. Um, but we can talk about those things anon. So as uh, some listeners are probably aware or recall, um, or can just simply sense by disturbances in the troposphere or the, or the ectoplasmic plane, I am... Um, not home. I am, well, wherever you have family is home. So maybe I am, but I am in the Pacific Northwest in one of my favorite places in the world, uh, the San Juan Islands, specifically Friday Harbor. It is where, um, I married the fair Jessica and, um, I drove out here with two dogs who now think this is their life and had Thanksgiving with the, uh, with a bunch of, uh, the Gavora clan, extended Gavora clan. And now, um, because of my excessive toxic masculinity, um, I have decided I'm going to stick around until my, my wife has a brutal book deadline project that she's working on and she wants to work out here rather than head back. And so, um, because chivalry is not dead, I am not flying home. I'm going to stick around until she finishes and then we will drive together because it was a, it was a pretty grueling drive, but we can talk about more of that anon. So I just bring all of this up in part uh, to bring our guest up to speed about why I, I look and sound the way I do, but also because um, I have not been 100% plugged in over the, la- over the Thanksgiving break, and so I'm going to rely on his titanic shoulders um, <laughs> to get me through <laughs> the news of the time. And with that cackle, um, I want to uh, bring you... Chris Starwalt, you know, uh, U.S. opened up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Canada opened up the uh, Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve. And I am opening up the Strategic Rank Pundit Reserve. So, Chris, welcome back to The Remnant. When when prices of rank punditry have gotten so high, when, when at, at this moment <laughs> where the demand is so far outstripping uh, the supply of rank punditry, you keep me and, like, Tom Bevan in the dugout in a basement somewhere and just roll us out as needed. I also want to say, I want to call BS on your intro because you're like Meadowlark Lemon and the Harlem Globetrotters are like, ah, I got a little bit of a trick knee. I don't know whether I'm going to be able to get in the game. I don't know, whatever. And then you'll be uh, fingertip rolls all the way. You're making me regret taking the duct tape off of your mouth in the preserve, in the reserve. <laughs> um, uh, so um, uh, how was your Thanksgiving break? 
was fantastic. Uh, and it was season. It was the, the temperature was correct. The attitudes were correct and not to be sappy, but you know, this was for the country probably, um, if not the most important Thanksgiving of my lifetime, uh, one of the most important Thanksgivings of uh, our, our national history, because after the bizarre experience of Americans being kept apart, especially older Americans being kept apart, family tradition continuity disrupted, the resumption, I think, was really important and really good, and it makes me happy. Indeed, Thanksgiving is, in fact, my favorite holiday. It's number one. It's the best. It's the most it's American. Th- it's the most American. It's very, very, very hard to commercialize. Um, and uh, um, because it's not a holiday where you go out to bars. It's not a holiday where you give people presents. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Thanksgiving is most definitely a going out to bars holiday because the night before Thanksgiving, as everyone knows, is that for young adults is the time that you put on your going out shirt and some uh, polo cologne uh, to go down and pretend like, oh, it, did I happen to run into everybody I went to high school with here? So there's def- there, that component's there. Yes, although you are giving off a good deal of your college-educated privilege for assuming that so. is the life of, 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 of everybody out there. No, but that's absolutely right. I had a tradition for years of the night before Thanksgiving going to a bar by Columbia called Cannons with my high school friends, and we would, we would make poor decisions there. And, um, I, I, let me just do, I just have to outdo you with one. Uh, our Thanksgiving tradition was a Thanksgiving night poker game played at the Hoagie Shack in Wheeling, West Virginia, which the tagline for the Hoagie Shack was dine with 10,000 clowns. <laughs> there were what? clown paintings, sculptures, clowns. That's how good the sandwiches were. Um, you're a keen eyed observer of Americana. Mm-hmm. when exactly do you think we decided that clowns were creepy and not funny or entertaining? Um, I, I, I believe that uh, WGN's Bozo the Clown um, uh-huh, was uh-huh, an uh-huh. ill-conceived and poorly executed. I think clowns are things that adults imagine children might like, but I don't think any, I don't think children ever delighted in clowns. I think clowns have always been, a dark side, a little scary. It's the makeup. It's the weirdness. It's all that stuff. I I think the jester, the fool, always has had the dark side to it. I think the bozo phenomenon was uh, a product of early television and so- something to do with deep dish pizza in Chicago. Yeah, I think that's probably part, definitely part of it. But there's also, I mean, John John Wayne Gacy didn't help. Not good. Not good. And um, there are things that people in like the renaissance or you know um you know 18th 19th century europe and america found entertaining in part because they didn't have color tv they didn't have color movies they didn't have color pictures and so like really pronounced makeup didn't seem like something you wore in order to get someone into your panel van with a tear-stained mattress it seemed like something wild and technicolor and that's yeah 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 and um, one of the things that I, I'm researching this book I'm, I'm working on, and one of the things that I'm being reminded of constantly is, why did we watch so many of these things? And the answer is, because they were on. That's why. Because they were on. And there wasn't anything else on. And that's what you watch. Why did I watch? I wasn't a huge Star Trek fan, 
but WTOV Channel 9 played Star Trek every Friday night or Saturday night, all night, like late into the night. It was what was on after Saturday Night Live was over. And that's that's what we watched. So I, I think a big part of we're cashing in all of our nostalgia. We're, we're, we're palpating our nostalgia glands constantly now. Uh, and now even kids as young as mine, teenagers, preteens, uh, experience sort of false nostalgia for the 80s and 90s because ours was the last generation that got to experience a common culture. And a lot of what made the culture common was that's what's on. Why are you going to watch the facts of life? Not because you chose to watch the facts of life. Nothing against you, Tootie, uh, Blair and Joe, but that that's what was on and that's what you were going to watch. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's no obvious reason for me to have seen Day of the Triffids nine times, <laughs> 10 times, <laughs> but WOR played it constantly. And, um, and you know, I've seen all of the Tojo product. I mean, forget Godzilla. I mean, yeah, please. What are Tojo, we? Tokers? Toho, Toho, Toho. Yeah. But there's also, um, there was the rival studio, which had the uh, turtle that when it pulled in its legs, it turned all four leg holes into jets and, uh, and spun really fast. And that was on the 430 movie all the time. And um, I agree with you entirely. Like in in, in forced cultural um, homogenization has its place. And the problem is, is like, how do you put that? As Rousseau said, let's elevate this for a second here. (laughs) <laughs> censorship censorship is crucial for preserving morals but it is useless for restoring them and amen. amen there's as i say there's no rewind button on this machine yeah yeah um though in the dispatch's strategic pundit reserve we do limit the fare that we will entertain you with <laughs> you ever seen the tv show profit um it's only on for one season so it was back when fox broadcast and we don't not not to raise various issues, but, uh, really rolled the dice on some crazy stuff. This is the era of when they, uh, first they did Tracy Ullman, which became, which, which spun off the Simpsons, but they had a, you know, they had a bunch of really weird show. I, I, I think that like the first two seasons of the show flying blind with Tia Leone, I remember it well. one of the best, it was really funny sitcom and Chris Elliott had a TV show. Anyway, there was this TV show called profit where this guy was raised in a refrigerator box as an abused child. And they wow, cut one fun. fun. Yeah. Great premise. It gets better. They cut the eye hole out of the side of the refrigerator box and at least it was implied threw food in and maybe took him out to, to relieve himself. But other than that, he was raised by a TV set that he watched through the eye hole of his refrigerator box. And he ends Yikes. up becoming a Titan of court corporate America with no scruples or morals or of any kind. Um, it's really brilliant kind of show. I, I feel like, um, I was raised by television. Um, I, I feel like the degree to which I find it very funny now, uh, the degree to which we limit our children's screen time and what they can watch and what they can do. My parents thought nothing of uh, just, just so long as I didn't sit too close to it because apparently right, right. gamma rays issue. or whatever, yeah. whether we're coming, you'll go blind or whatever. Um, but I, the amount of television that I consumed, uh, and the television was always on, uh, at home and. It's funny going back now, since you can watch almost anything uh, from the old days, though, sadly, I'm, I'm here to tell you, Riptide, still not available. But the, <laughs> I can go back and watch all of these old shows, and they press on my brain. I'm like, oh, I was raised by this machine. This was the box, this yeah, was the box yeah. that, that parented me. Yeah. Um, 
to this day, I chuckle that the, in the TV show Benson, the woman who played Olga, the, I think it was Olga the maid. Kraus. Kraus, that's Gretchen. right. Gretchen but, Kraus. Right, but her, okay, so like her real name was like Ingus Benson. Mm-hmm. I was like, so it's sort of like, you know, Cam Fung is Chin Ho in Hawaii Right, 5-0. the Hawaii Five-0, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand this is a very occidental white American viewpoint, but I was like, why, why, why'd they change the name? Uh, <laughs> as, as opposed to Tony Danza, who always needed to be a character named Tony, so he would not be confused because they didn't want to name him <laughs> Mike. And he'd be like, what? Oh no, Tony, it's you. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then there was, was Ricardo Montalban, who on Y5O played the Asian, the, tri- the Japanese crime lord. And they like, did things with his eyes that are not acceptable, sort of like what they did in um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Well, you and I have talked about this before. Well, Breakfast at Tiffany's, the fact that that's still skating by, given Mickey Rooney's incredibly, incredibly yeah. racially caricatured performance uh, as a Japanese man. Uh, it was like pretty, a Dr. It, Seuss World War II cartoon made live action. It, it, makes, it, makes, it makes you more appreciate uh, the, the genius of the writing and the acting and the rest of the movie that we're still letting that one slip by all right, so we should we should do some actual um, t- punditry type stuff. Um, um, where to begin? So I just wrote my um, LA Times column. I'll be up at the Dispatch mañana um, uh, on the salt tax stuff. We don't have to get deep in the weeds in that, but my basic thesis is, is that the Build Back Better thing is more of a sop to the Democratic coalition and a sort of low burner culture war stuff as it is necessarily. Yeah, technocratic yeah, yeah. expertise, right? I mean, like, um, and the, I think the better example, which is just sort of a throwaway line in the column, is we're going to spend trillions of dollars on, um, or hundreds of billions, whatever the number is, if it's a numbers, zeros, commas, um, the on the the childcare stuff, and religious institutions are exempted, even though like fifty three percent of families who use pre-K childcare use at their local church or synagogue or mosque or whatever. It's, you know, like we use the little church preschool program for my daughter, you know, and they're exempted. And to me, that's partly culture bias, but it's also partly like those institutions are not part of the sort of college educated helping professions, coalitions that make up the the democratic urban base. It's, and Anyway, so like, uh, you respond to any of that um, while I re- try to remember why I brought it up. Um, but also, what's what's going to happen in the Senate? Just you know, turn the rank punditry gain to nine and have four. Well, I think uh, a good way to think about the horribly named "Build Back Better" um, is this is I call it a kitchen junk drawer of programs. Um, they're preposterously funded. Uh, yeah, we're going to have this for like, uh, three years and then it'll sunset. (laughs) So go ahead and spend all the money. Now the, the cockamamie one about subsidies for, uh, local news coverage where you get 50,000 the first year and then 25,000 for four years after that for each, uh, journal for each local journalism position. And it's like the, the, the cynicism of a program like that, that is that, and this is just indicative of the rest of them. We'll get it started, and hopefully, people will be stuck with it 
So the the real the real cost of the legislation, if it actually did the things that its proponents wanted, would be many, 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 many trillions of dollars, right? $12 trillion, $15 trillion, because these things would go on in perpetuity. But they're doing the shady CBO math and all of that kind of stuff uh, to try to fake their way to a fake number. Um, but a way to think about it is these things are SOPs. To, so take, for example, the uh, $1.7 billion for local news coverage. Guess who has a bill that would do that on a standalone basis? Why? Joe Manchin third of West Virginia. So there are a bunch of things in the legislation that are SOPs to individual senators or individual blocks or members to, to get them together in some way. I think the incentive for Manchin and Cinema to vote for this legislation is low. And I think that the squad really shot themselves in the foot, in the feet, when they voted against the very popular bipartisan uh, actual infrastructure bill. Their uh, pouty votes on this uh, let moderates off the hook, right? Uh, they were able to get it uh, through the House side because of the salt tax, um, not, to, not to be get down into the crevices here, but Moderate Democrats tend to come from rich places. <laughs> uh, it used to be moderate Democrats came from the South, people like Bill Clinton uh, and the old, the old model. Um, but now you're going to find a lot of moderate Democrats in the suburbs, in affluent areas. And for those moderate Democrats, they need and really want to be able to show their constituents that they can get them relief on the state and local tax changes that Republicans put through to punish those voters. Uh, the Republicans uh, did their own creative uh, bookkeeping to come up with the Trump tax cut uh, by uh, with removing the um, exemption for taxes for uh, state and local taxes. And if you're a Democrat in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, uh, New York metropolitan area, Southern California, places where it's really expensive to live uh, and taxes are really high, you're willing to give up a lot to get there. But when we flip over to the Senate, Manchin doesn't need a salt tax. He doesn't even want to, he doesn't need a salt tax exemption. As a matter of fact, for Cinema and Manchin, it looks bad to vote in favor of giving a tax break to millionaires. So I, I feel... Uh, the, I think the most likely scenario is that the Senate comes back with the Senate Democrats eventually come up with something on their own. Um, but they're going to do so as the shot clock ticks down on the uh, debt ceiling, on government funding and all that stuff. So I guess that's a very long way of saying Mitch McConnell's play of separating the debt ceiling uh, way back in the summertime and pulling that out. Uh, is is going to reap its greatest reward here at the end, probably. So Bernie Sanders is passionately opposed to the salt tax exemption. It's one of these rare, you know, you've heard me talk about this a zillion times where sometimes a 100% left-wing ideological position is preferable to a, let's put it this way, 100% ideological position on either the left or the right is better than a than splitting the difference at 50% of either, of both, right? Right. And so like Sanders is like, yeah, this is a giveaway to millionaires and billionaires. And it really is the way it's structured. I mean, I spent a long time trying to understand it with, you know, my lips are tired from all the reading. And, um, <laughs> um, uh, 
and he's made a lot of noise about it and all of the sort of Bernie bro types on Twitter. I've, you know, seeing how they're outraged about it and all this kind of stuff. But he's going to vote for it, right? I mean, there's no way he's going to vote against the Build Back Better bill, even if it has the SALT exemption. Because he's, yeah, he would vote for this version of it. Old. Well, right. He, he would vote for the House version of it. Will he get to vote on the House version of it? Will that be brought forward? And right, my, my, the, my, my, my question is more basic. Let's say that for whatever reason, Mansion and Cinema have a, you know, they wake up with their favorite horses' heads in their bed and they agree to vote for this thing. But Sanders says he's passionately against the, the salt tax thing. Even if the House version were in, even if the House version were adopted in total, he would still vote for it, even though he doesn't like it, right? I mean, it's like, this is not going to be the hill he dies on to scrub nearly $2 right. trillion dollars in spending, um, ab- despite ab- all the ab- protests. Yeah, no way. But what he is saying is that when we get to the negotiation, right, about what the Senate version is going to look like, do you remember, by the way, once upon a time, there was a thing called uh, a conference committee? Do you remember how, when, when Congress worked. Do you remember what mm-hmm, that used mm-hmm, to be? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things we got to watch over the past 20 years, Congress destroy itself in a, in a really complete way. But prior to Obamacare, at least, but you have to go back a little further, but Obamacare was sort of the hinge point in all of this. The way it's supposed to work is you pass your version in the House. I pass my version in the Senate. We select conferees. They go into the meeting with each other. They and their staff sort out the differences between the two bills and come out with one joint resolution that then goes back to the both houses to be passed. That is how the system is designed and supposed to work. But people don't like that because that would mean cooperation and that would, be, that would leave them open to allegations of weakness or conciliating with the devil. So what we do is this ping pong back and forth. So the House fires a shot over, so the Senate will fire a shot over, so then the House will fire a shot back over, and then maybe the Senate can amend it and then send it back one more time. All of that adds up to time, right? All of that adds up to time that would not have been necessary if I can just get on the hobby horse one time very quickly and then I'll get right off. The biggest problems that we have in American politics today are not ideological, they're institutional, and high, high on the list of how you fix what's wrong is Congress has to get back to regular order, has to get back to some way to let the committee process and let things work so that at the end, you know what you're voting on, you know what it is, and you can have an actual debate about what's in it as opposed to what we have now, which is a bunch of hidden ball tricks. And it's a ridiculous way to run such an enterprise. No, I agree with that. I mean, it's the, it seems to me the, the failures are institutional and the, whether you want to call them um, uh, opportunists or um, entrepreneurs or um, war, you know, uh, warlords who are taking advantage of the chaos um, are ideological bad actors, right? And so... You have people, if the system is supposed to make, you know, if the system were working properly and um, Matt Gates was screaming and um, tearing out the pages of his coloring book and, and, and throwing them at people and making spitballs, the grownups would say, shut up, kid, we're working here, 
But when those institutions aren't working, aren't doing their stuff, and so the cameras have to cover something, and the, everyone, everyone has to talk about something, the people who are willing to be theatrical can take advantage of the fact that there are no adults working on stuff saying, shut up, we're working here, you know? Um, was it Ilhan Omar uh, or Rashida Tlaib who said that someone had defecated the house? Did you see that? I did not see that. I like that. Yes, it was, yeah. it was a great, it was a, a great malapropism. Uh, she said that, uh, I believe it was Marjorie Taylor Greene had defecated the house. And I was like, well, you never want to do that. That's, that's, that's <laughs> never a good, that's never a good sign. Um, so you're Kevin McCarthy and Please, you, sir. How dare you sir. <laughs> at long last, sir, um, <laughs> you're Kevin McCarthy. You're contemplating life in the majority. You're contemplating your speakership, even though some of your members are going around saying that maybe you won't ever get to be speaker. And we should say out front, it's, let's say it's 95% likely that the Republicans are going to take the House. Now, the Republicans could win 45 seats uh, or they could win 15 seats. And how many they win, uh, so they need five. So if they win 12, that's going to make life very unhappy for Kevin McCarthy, not only in getting the speakership, but what does he have to promise in order to get the speakership? Uh, what you have to promise to get the speakership is to put fundamentally unserious people in serious positions, right? You have to tell Jim Jordan that he gets to run the House Judiciary Committee, for example, which is preposterous. And you have to treat people like um, Gates or Gosar or whatever as credible parts of your party because you need them in your coalition because they have already demonstrated the willingness to, to vote in a block to punish you. And you know it. So you have to put these people in positions of authority. So what is your response to that? Your response is to make those positions of authority less valuable. You don't want the possibility that Paul Gosar is going to have uh, be able to get legislation through a committee. You don't want the possibility that these other people are going to do it. So you keep it all for yourself. You sit on that power. You write the legislation in secret. I was talking to a, uh, a, a soon-to-be former member of Congress who talked about one of the disadvantages of the secretive way in which the, the majoritarian system in both houses works now, you can't even ask your friends what they think about a provision, right? So let's say you're, you're the, the budget, number one budget expert and I'm working on a defense bill. I can't ask you about it because you might find out about it and say to somebody else what the bill was and then everybody would find out and it would be ruined. So the leader just says, you work on this in secret. Then when we roll it out, people go, well, this is stupid. Why didn't you ask me about this? So that's how dumb all of this stuff is. And it's not surprising that we get, you know, there, there are two trends that work very, very much to the, the uh, adverse outcome for what we want Congress to do. Number one is that secrecy uh, and that majoritarian impulse. But another one is massiveness. Everybody wants a massive bill. And we remember this with immigration. We remember this with Obamacare. People and institutions can consume things piecemeal a lot better than they can uh, on massive scale. So what Democrats are trying to do with Build Back Better is get, the, get 100 camel's noses under uh, 100 tents uh, in one shot, get a bunch of stuff launched, and then hopefully in five years for them, the cycle will work out that they'll have control of one or both houses of Congress and can maybe push through an extension of those things. That's a preposterous way to try to run a government.
Yeah, and we should be clear. I mean, your example with uh, McCarthy and Gosar and all these people, that's an illustration of something that is not just prospective, but retrospective. This has been the problem for 20 plus years now that um, leadership writes the bills and then presents like tablets coming down from the mountain for the Israelites. Probably should drop this metaphor now. They say, (laughs) here's a... Here's a fait accompli. You vote up for it, vote down for it. And, you know, Pelosi says, I won't even bring something out unless I have the votes for it. So there's no role for debate in anything. And, or real committee work. Right. And there's no real committee. I, mean, I wrote about this not long ago. Like, it's, it's very sad to me. Talk about mainlining nostalgia from our childhood. If, if you ran today the schoolhouse rock, I'm just a bill, the, the fact checkers would have a field day because that's literally not how it works anymore, <laughs> you know? And that's that's sad. Um, legislation is supposed to come from the bottom up. It's supposed to be debated at sort of at every stage of, of the process. And and people are supposed to go to the leadership and say, look, we've got this legislation that we've, we've been working on for a really long time. We've got all the stakeholders built in. Instead, it's the, just the reverse process where it comes from the top down. I'm not I'm not going to try to fill the entire remnant bingo card in one in one conversation here but what we're also lacking is subsidiarity I wrote about this uh in my column for Monday which is the federal government's supposed to be a subsidiary of the states the states are supposed to be a subsidiary of the local and county governments and the issues are supposed to flow up right the big the the things that can be solved should be solved at the closest level and we have a great example of this in the discussion over Roe v. Wade. The idea that you could have a top-down solution imposed by seven justices of the Supreme Court that would suit the country is not only ridiculous, but it's antithetical to the way the American system's supposed to work. It's supposed to go from your town council to your county commission to your state legislature, then to Congress, and then to the president. And if you can't do it in all of those places... Then as a last resort, you have the Supreme Court. It's not supposed to start there. All right, since um, we might as well be sitting on a porch. Uh-oh, hold on one second. I have canines and coffee coming. That's what the people want. That's what the people are here for, Jenna Goldberg. Well, I'll tell you, if English Springer Spaniels had suicide bombers, uh, the San Juan Islands would be the, the, the paradise that they were promised for um, their crimes. It is just... It's a fantastic place. Particularly, like in summer, it's just really one of the greatest places in the world. You, you have intrigued me. Your love of it has intrigued me sufficiently that it is now on my list of, of American places that I really want to go and see. I highly recommend it. Oh, so let's, let's talk about this for a second. Not so much. I don't want to. I'm, I'm, I'm amongst them right now, so I have to be careful. And even though, statistically speaking, uh, remnant listenership in the San Juan Islands is not high. It does exist. There are people, I, I hear from people who are out here. But um, one of the things, like, I find, I don't know. Right, so let's put it this way. I was in Homer, Alaska last summer, uh, two summers ago. Um, I don't recommend going there just to see Homer. But if you're in the area, Homer is really worth seeing. Um, I mean, just physically, it's cool. Um, it's like, I can't remember the exact geologic terms for it but it is the it is on the largest spit the longest spit of land 
like in the world. It's basically just like less than a peninsula. It's it's like you can see both sides of it. It's maybe 50, 100 yards across, 200 yards across. And not the whole town, but the big chunk of it. And it just goes way out into this Arctic kind of bay kind of thing. And it's ringed by mountains. Really cool looking. And uh, and the place is full of hippies. And Obviously. The thing I respect about hippies in places like Alaska's got a lot of hippies in it is that, let's put it this way, if you're in Malibu and you're getting all of your unguents at Sephora and the body shop, it's pretty easy to be a hippie, but, but you got to really, you're living up to your hippie ideals in a place like, like Homer, Alaska, where it's cold a lot of, you know, a big part of being a hippie is just having to wear summer clothing year round and like, yeah, the car, the cargo <laughs> shorts. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I, I love my favorite hippies in the world, uh, are the hippies of Southern West Virginia, uh, especially around Fayetteville, West Virginia, which is the whitewater rafting capital of the East Eastern U S. Uh, and of course the ski resorts are, uh, right uh, at, at hand too. And then there's some just back to the land homies who are who uh, are there to uh, smoke tie stick and make cabinetry, and I love them uh, because unlike unlike the urban hippie, see the urban hippie uh, is disdainful of the life around him. Right, the urban hippie is like corporations, man, and as you say, going into Sephora. But if you're doing it in a wood fired cabin. Uh, in uh, Raynell, West Virginia, then you're doing that. Then you then you come by it honest, and I have a lot. I, I dig that a lot more. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit like you know. I wrote this review of this book, The Reactionary Mind, um, and uh, we don't have to get deep in the weeds on that. But one of its core contentions is that serfs had it better. And, oh boy! Um, oh boy! <laughs> which uh, <laughs> just who wrote that? Fetch- uh, I, I don't want to beat up on a guy. It's what's his name? Michael Warren Davis. And it's actually a delightful Jeez book, Louise. but it's, as I put it, it's the, the road to serfdom is paved with bull because ah! it is just, it yes. is just not, I mean, it's just not, I mean, it's just factually wrong on like this kind of stuff. And I had a cat the other day, try to explain to me how, uh, human beings reach their fullest potential in like the 15th century. And I was like, bro, you had to poop in a bucket and women were property. I don't think that we were nailing it. I don't, I don't think that was really it. And also, like, you never want to talk about a whole species based on, like, one or two outliers. Yeah, Galileo, right. super Killing impressive it. dude. But exactly. Like, exactly. You know, like, like exactly. most people weren't living the Galileo life. Most people, like, you know, like, I just, every now and then I go back and I, I, my favorite metric of all this stuff is time. Like, how many hours of a day or a week or a month or a year did you need for indoor light? And um, how long did it take you to churn butter? If you read, um, if you go back and listen to the podcast I did with Virginia Postrel, like women all around the planet, um, and not because of, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of sexism involved, but it was also just like a division of labor thing because men had crappy jobs too. But women, almost every waking moment of their lives when they weren't doing something else, was they were weaving just making thread or yarn or whatever and um but anyway it's like oh the only reason i bring it up is like the hippies i grew up with in new york they were just basically rebelling against their corporate lawyer parents or whatever and um and it's sort of like the reactionary crowd that thinks the 1200s were better 
I'd have a lot more respect for those people if they weren't writing books and didn't have blogs, you know, making this point, but were in fact tanning, you know, deer hide right. exactly. out in the we're bush. Like, um, we're, 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 uh, laid down their tallow rendering briefly in order to uh, tweet. Yes. Right. Exactly. And, um, um, and how did I get on this? Oh yeah. But I, I do think it'd be good if, it, if you had the right writer to actually do a field guide to hippies. Um, because uh, I'm into it and maybe we were using the term wrong, but you know, like I remember the first time I went to New Me- Taos, New Mexico, and I expected it to be full of like body shop hippies. Oh no. And it, it was a lot of Charles Manson hippies. Oh yes. Which I think we can all agree are the worst hippies, right? Um, yeah, the, the the salty bo is uh, a big turnoff. That's a big that's a big hard pass. Yeah, also you know involved in in mass murder is bad too. Yeah, I mean, um, if you want if 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 you if you want to be uptight about things, that's fine. Yeah, if you want to draw um, these harsh distinctions, I, we would also need a category for the trustafarians. Uh, mm, yes, those, for sure. Those those people whose families left them just enough money to suck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the guy, the, the guys who went to boarding schools but stink of patchouli. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. Are, and a large segment of those people. Uh, the the secret is, and I I was I did not have the foresight to be born rich, uh, which I definitely should have done in hindsight. But I can say that the the privilege curse and Washington. I was talking about this the other day. One of the things that Washington that causes Washington to struggle is that in the nobility of Europe, what was it? The first son inherits everything. The second son goes to the military. And then the third son goes to the priesthood. And the Washington is a lot of third sons, metaphorically speaking, right? There are a lot of men and women in Washington who are either directly being subsidized still by inheritance or their families uh, who are able to work in jobs that are not remunerative enough uh, to maintain a whole life, but they can be here and sort of feel important and be around it. Those people take up a lot of space and it's probably not great. It's probably not super. Um, it's so nice being able to talk to you and not have any plan about what we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> cause I, the amazing thing is I very much doubt you know, one in 10,000 listeners have noticed that we have no plan here. Uh, yes, it's, we've been fantastic. Very, very cagely hidden. Uh, the fact that this is a rambling, free form conversation. Yeah, the, the, the discipline of this bo- podcast takes a backseat to no other. Um, Truly. all right. So back to the rank punditry for a couple seconds. Um, um, we talked about this last we talked, uh, was on the Dispatch podcast. And we covered some of this then, but um, I just saw the Telegraph in the UK has resurfaced this idea, this idea of a rumor of an idea of a hot take, which is that what Biden's going to do is put Kamala, Kamala Harris on the Supreme Court and pick a new running mate uh, for 2024. And let's, let's do it this way. Remember that game? I mean, I'm sure this was in West Virginia, uh, a big part of your childhood. Remember those placemats at diners? What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, of course. Okay. Run through as many of the things as you can come up with and say 90 seconds of what's wrong with this picture from any end. Well, um, could she vote for herself? Could she break the tie in her own favor? 
Oh, that's a good, that's a way to go for the obscure first. Um, I like it. So I don't know about, I, I, the get, let's get the parliamentarian in here. Uh, so I don't know about that. I also don't know that she could get to 50. Uh, she, I mean, she probably could, I guess, if Biden said he wanted to do it. But that still wouldn't resolve the problem. And the problem is the Democrats have no stinking idea who their nominee is going to be or even likely to be in 2024. Um, there have been circumstances in the past where there has been an obvious power vacuum like this one inside a party. Um, not surprisingly, I think of 1924 to 1928 uh, after Coolidge declares he's not going to run again in Hoover. But in that case, somebody had stepped forward. Hoover had already stepped forward to be the guy. Um, when Johnson falls apart late, uh, everybody knows it's going to be Humphrey, right? It, it's it's got to be. It's got to be until RFK makes his uh, late sprint. But I can't think of a time in and correct me if you can. Um, I cannot think of a time in the past fifty years where you have had a party in power in such a deep quandary over the question of who the next candidate for president would be for that party. I guess you could say in 2008, McCain and Giuliani. So it was, a, it was weird then, but that was after two terms. Certainly with a first-term president, when does this happen? And it's deeply, deeply unsettling to a party, right? This is really scrambles your eggs because the, the obeisance and the, uh, what parties are supposed to do after they win the White House is reward their friends um, and start running for re-election right away. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pay off your friends uh, from a political standpoint. Yes, it's good if you can have a successful agenda, though I think we have to go back a pretty, we have, we have to go back to uh, 1981, 1982 for somebody who really did a big transformative successful first term that way. But you're supposed to pay off your friends and then get ready to run for re-election. Democrats can't and they don't know what to do, and it's it's driving them crazy. Yeah. So this, I mean, so in the in the what's wrong with this picture category, I personally don't think Biden's running again. But he cannot tell people. I mean, he may run again, but he cannot tell people now he's not running again because if it becomes clear that he's not running again, then a lot of people start running. He'll have people in, you know, like remember in the Bush administration. After W got reelected, Rove and those guys were very smart about this. I mean, at least on paper, they were very smart. Life got in the way. But um, where they knew from history that second-term presidents are bedeviled by cabinet secretaries who go rogue because they want to run for president themselves. And so in the second term, he put loyalists everywhere. He got rid of Ashcroft and put in Gonzalez. He, you know. Put, it was you, Fredo. I'm sorry. Yes. And anyway, so we can go down, uh, you know, oh, he, and he, he put caretakers and, and loyalists in there because he didn't want anyone freelancing on him. Brought in Ed Gillespie. Yeah. So if you're going to run, if Biden let it be known now he's not running, then first of all, Harris starts freelancing stuff to position herself. But so does Buttigieg. So do a half dozen senators. So do some governors. People stop listening. You lose power when it's like in 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 ye olden times, if the king didn't have an heir and he was getting up there, people start maneuvering. And so running again is the equivalent of his, of the king's heir. And he, he will plague himself with problems if he does that. 
And so he has I think he to already, like, I'm sorry. Well, I think he already, I think he already is. I think, I, I think the Washington line right now or the, among the Democrats I talked to uh, is that the assumption is that Biden can't, right? He's, it's pretty bad, right? You listen to him talk, you see him in interviews, you look at his numbers and it's pretty bad. So I don't know if we were to do, I used to, I need to do one. I uh, call them smart people surveys, blind emails to people. I say, I will not, I will not say uh, who, what you said, but what do you think? And I bet if I did that, we'd be pretty close to even money on whether Joe Biden would really run again. It is, I think it's that far, I think it's that far down the, down the pipe for Democrats now. I agree entirely. But my point is, is it just a big difference politically between implicit and explicit? You're yeah, seen yeah, yeah, as yeah, disloyal yeah, yeah. if you're publicly maneuvering to run in 2024 if Biden has says he's going to run again. That's if, not going to stop thirsty old Pete Buttigieg, though. Of course not. But, but it, Pete it, is there. But it'll change the way he does it, right? Yeah. And, yep, yep, yep. and so, and it'll create fewer problems for Biden. So that's, that's part of the thing is that this is all nonsense about finding a running mate to run again. And then there's the other thing about like the idea that she can get on the Supreme Court. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm just like, it's just, <laughs> to me, it's, it's so Aaron Sorkin. I, right. I, I, I totally agree that it, it is unlikely to happen. But, and then there's, but, yeah, okay, but what, but what? It would be so, good for him so to do it? So let's say uh, Biden, Team Biden was like, okay, we need a real vice president. We got to have a real vice president. And Harris has, I'm sympathetic to Biden. He really didn't have any choice but to pick Harris. But the way that the, the campaign worked out and given her attacks on him over race early on and a bunch of other reasons, by the end, if he had not picked not just a black woman, but that black woman, uh, it would have been serious headaches. The, the, even the entertainment, you know, Media Matters is going to quote you as just referring to Kamala Harris as that black woman now. That black woman. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the very reason that Val Demings, for example, got a look and got a serious look, despite her paper thin resume in national politics, uh, was that everybody already knew that. Kamala Harris is not good at this, right? Her, her crash and burn uh, presidential candidacy, the very high expectations that immediately revealed themselves to be misplaced. So this was, this was an open secret. And, but I don't think Biden had any choice but to pick her, where she was from, how you know, she, she had been to the degree that she was successful in running and all that other stuff. And if he had snubbed her, he would have he emboldened and strengthened her. At this point, she, if you could get rid of her in a way that was not ultimately disruptive, I think a lot of Democrats would be very happy. I think there would be, so if Biden had a replacement, so I guess what I'm saying is, it's not going to happen that Joe Biden is going to put Kamala Harris on the Supreme Court, comma. But if he had a really good replacement for her in mind and could, and could pull off the switcheroo, which again, it's not going to happen. But if he could, a lot of Democrats would be relieved. A lot of Democrats would be happy if he could say, okay, and, this, and now we've got this other person who is the clear front runner for 2024 right now. So, I mean, you know my take on these things. It seems self-evidently true that if the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party would allow it, the smartest thing Biden could do would be put, to make Joe Manchin vice president. Um, because first of all, it would buy a vote for build back better, <laughs> but, um, the country is far closer to Joe Manchin 
in directionally than it probably is to any other national politician out there. And a big spending, kind of decent, kind of hokey, not too bright. I'm not trying to insult Americans or Joe Manchin, but he's not, he's not a sophisticated intellectual guy. And he doesn't try to speak in that language. Um, he's like a normal American dude who's in favor of like being kind to people. And he thinks that the way you're kind to people is through large amounts of government spending. So I have lots of philosophical disagreements with him, but you know, you can't call him a socialist. You can't say he's he's a traditional Democrat. He is a, he is a West Virginia Democrat. He's like a Sam Nunn guy, right? You know, and, um, that's where America is for the most part, sort of culturally conservative. He likes the 4th of July. He doesn't want to talk about 400 years of, you know, of genocide and all that. And, and so, but that's not going to happen. And meanwhile, you see Democrats talking incessantly um, about uh, Buttigieg. Now, I'm not a Buttigieg hater. I've never been a Buttigieg hater. I mean, there is a weird sort of if Alfred E. Newman went to college look to the guy. But um, where is this notion coming from that he really speaks to people outside of constituencies that he already has. I mean, I I don't quite get it. Um, There was talk that he was a moderate at the beginning of the primaries, but he he seemed incapable of sustaining that line. So when um, George Bush, the younger, ran for president in 2000, he was very careful to make sure, and I'm not saying it was not sincere, uh, but he was very careful to make sure that the religious right was not going to get inside the inside track on him. His dad had dealt with Pat Robertson, uh, and George W. Bush was not going to be outflanked. We remember the Iowa debate. Uh, who's uh, what do you say, a philosopher that you've read or whatever? And Jesus George Christ, W. Yeah, Bush yeah. said, "Jesus Christ," because he changed my life, uh, changed my heart, and he was going to do what his father didn't do and what other establishment Republicans wouldn't do, which is openly specifically embrace faith in a way that even Reagan had not. So that was because mainstream voters couldn't understand it, but the power of the religious right had grown to such a point inside the Republican party that it had to be taken seriously by everybody, right? Donald Trump going from uh, yeah, I take I eat the I take the little cracker. I drink the I drink the wine. Uh, I guess whatever. Two Corinthians to having no, no, all manners. My favorite my favorite part was what it was your favorite. What is your favorite Bible verse? And he said, I guess an eye for an eye. He's <laughs> 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 just super Christian, <laughs> super Christian. Big, that's pretty much you know it's John three sixteen and that one pretty much sum up the whole faith. But um, Trump went from that point to having, what's her name, Paula White, like all of these like super fringeo, uh, extreme uh, radical Christians surrounding him and he's riding the lion uh, and he is David. So that's how powerful that sect is. Um, John McWhorter's new book, uh, Woke Racism, really helped me because it helped me to understand in a political sense the woke community, wokeism, uh, is that power inside the Democratic Party. And Pete Buttigieg, if he were not a gay man, would not, it wouldn't matter, right? It just would not matter. But that gives him in 
if if anti-racism, if anti-bigotry is the religion, right? If the if the religion of the American left is intersectional, uh, retributive intersectional justice, this get this makes Pete Buttigieg important in a way that Tom Vilsack is not. This makes Pete Buttigieg important in a way that Joe Manchin is not, and uh, that that has really helped my thinking to understand the religiosity. Uh, the secular religiosity of the left. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, but again, so this is the point. I mean, like uh, Josh Krauschauer, our friend Josh Krauschauer, he made this point on the podcast a few months ago that he talks to Democratic staffers who will say they understand that such and such is good politics but they just can't do it, right? This is the David Shore stuff, which, you know, again, because it confirms all my priors, I think is really brilliant. Um, and, uh, and so, like, to me, there's a, a big chunk of the Buttigieg boom is a perfect example of the bubble that Democrats live in and, and or that elite East Coast, Acela Corridor, California, you know, the, the people doing the nuts and bolts stuff in the administration who are the producers and reporters who these people talk to and have their biases confirmed. The idea that Buttigieg is the answer to the problems that facing the Democratic Party right now just strike me as kind of ludicrous. Um, unless, you're, unless you think the problems of the Democratic Party are simply internal to the Democratic Party. It's sort of like you have a frat on campus that um, everybody's on double secret probation and they are poised to be expelled in mass. And a bunch of them have police records and huge numbers of them have substance abuse problems. And they're like, we got to get our act together, blah, 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 blah. And the thing that they want to get, the thing that they think will fix the problem is getting a different president of the fraternity. Who's better at party planning. Right, 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 like right. Fixing the fundamental problems, like internal to Democratic Party. Yeah, if you're if you think the problem with the Democratic Party right now is finding someone to replace Kamala Harris, then okay, maybe Pete Buttigieg makes total sense. But if you think the problem with the Democratic Party is that it cannot speak outside of its bubble without seeming sort of vaguely alien to unpatriotic to uh, disconnected from the concerns of real Americans, then um, I just don't see how Buttigieg is the answer to that problem. Andrew Yang, um, we could list throughout time. And by the way, it does happen in both parties. Um, when uh, we hear, I'm trying to think of a good example of this on the Republican side, a recent example, but there will be many boomlets on the Republican side for 2024 oh, for sure. that will exist totally outside of the space. And some of them will be, do you remember when Time Magazine, this was one of my favorites, Time Magazine put Rand Paul on the cover of Time and said, can this man save the Republican Party? Uh, turns out, no, as a matter of fact. Turns out, no. Uh, and New York Times the, called him the most interesting man in politics, which was um, not true. Not true. Turned out to be totally incorrect uh, and ha-ha. But the, bu the bubble-blowing phenomenon is always true. I think in Buttigieg's case, the competition's pretty weak, right? Who, in, who, who is a national Democratic figure under the age of 70 who is an impressive person right now? Um, I think Merrick Garland's pretty close to 70, but he is the other cabinet member that comes to mind as somebody who seems competent and seems like they know what they're doing. Um, 
But having Mr. Parks and Recreation out there talking about supply chain ahead of Christmas or whatever, and he's good TV, right? He's good at getting on TV. He's excited. He talks about it. He's good with a quip. Um, he is not thin-skinned. He's able to go do this stuff and likes trolling. So I think he is, I, I can't think of another national democratic figure who is better at this or more appealing than Buttigieg. Now that says more about the Democrats probably than it does about Buttigieg, right? That says how weak uh, the, the bench is and why the, not impossibility, but near impossibility of a viable Biden candidacy uh, in 2024 is causing so much churn in the party. They're scared and they know that it could happen again. They certainly know that Donald Trump could become president of the United States again. And they know it's true. They just know it's true. Unfortunately for Republicans, a lot of them know it's true too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is the weird irony in that, yeah, look, I mean, like, I, I don't like the squad. I don't like, you know, you know, I think Cory Bush is insane. Um, but these are like, Con, you know, individual yeah, congress. These are nobody. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but it's weird that there's this, this asymmetry where I think the Democrats have fewer embarrassing crazies, but also fewer good, reasonable politicians who can do the job. And the Republicans actually have, you know, for every one of the Republicans crazies, who I do think, you know, with maybe a couple of exceptions are worse than the Democrats crazies. You know, I mean, like it, it's, a, it's a remember, remember Trump cards, which has nothing to do with Donald Trump, but like Top you know, Trump's. You, yeah. Yeah. We're like a car. Oh, V8, PCR V6. You know, I love that stuff. Right. If you could have a um, for people who, who have not had the, seen these, they are great for kids. This is a good stocking stuffer. For uh, sure. And you can learn history. You can learn stuff uh, uh, by playing these. It's basically playing war with trivia. Right. And it's like, I used to, I used to know a lot about fighter jets because it, at camp, we would play them with these ones, but for planes and like, you know, can you imagine were, if, if, if you could spool out the useless knowledge in our minds that was acquired between age eight and 15, my God, dude, I would just be so happy if I could continue to recall so much of it. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I was like, in a game of Trump cards of like, does Marjorie Taylor green beat Elon Omar in terms of crazy irresponsibility. I think so, but it's, it's close, you know, but you do all that. But meanwhile, like the Republican party still has Doug Ducey and Glenn Youngkin and, you know, Mitt Romney and, and, you know, and, and people I disagree, plenty of people and Tom Cotton, I got disagreements with, but he's kind of a grown up compared to. No, he's, he definitely is. I, I agree with you, but, or I agree with you. And don't forget, there are a lot of Democrats hiding. Yeah. That you, that, so uh, what kind of person is Mark Kelly? Do you think Mark Kelly is a cuckoo yeah, bird? Yeah. No, but he's not going to, he don't want to talk about it. Is John Hickenlooper nuts? No. Uh, I mean, he's weird, but in a delightful Colorado way. Um, the, the Democratic Senate, just to take as a unit, is full of people who are very, very happy that Joe Manchin is happy to walk out and take the ball bat to his forehead every day because that means they don't have to. And uh, I think they're, they're, the tragedy of our time in politics in a lot of ways is that we have two mostly normal parties that have been hijacked by extremists in both cases. And the normal people are afraid to, be, to come out of the closet as normal. 
the, the normal people are afraid to come out and say, you know what? Uh, let's just figure it out. We'll take it into committee. We'll do it. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll work it out. We'll just figure it out. And it's not the end of the world. When you treat everything, and there are a lot of reasons for this, but I think in politics specifically, crisis is so effective at generating clicks and generating interest and generating base stuff. When you put yourself on a permanent crisis footing, um, then you don't ever want to be caught out saying, well, guys, can't we just not worry about this so much and we'll just get along and get on to the next thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a deep, deep metaphor there. Um, for a recent decision I made to um, no longer be a Fox News contributor. Oh, yeah. Um, there oh, are yeah. Any, as, uh, as you know, there are an enormous number of decent and fairly normal people um, at that institution. Um, and they're, I don't know that the hostage shaking may or may not be the right term for it, but they're, they're crowded out. They're, uh, they're, um, by, you know, let's put it this way. Uh, Matt Gates has his doppelgangers in, or his corresponding numbers in media and, um, and the, and that dynamic was not, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I, I, I I have many things to say about all of this because there has been an enormous amount of um, untrue things <laughs> said mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm, last mm-hmm, week mm-hmm. to ten days. Um, and for listeners who don't know, uh, Steve Hayes and I uh, resigned our contributor trips to Fox, and it became a big hullabaloo. My LA Times—I wasn't part of my plan was not to write about it at all. But then the LA Times was like, "Look, you know, you've been writing us seventeen years." My editor was literally like, "You are the you," meaning me are the number one trending thing on Google right now ahead of Amazon Prime Black Friday sales. <laughs> and, not she bad. Like, and she was like, our readers would think it's really weird that you're not saying something about this. So I wrote something about it. But, but generally, I, I'm trying to avoid getting too deep into this. And the number of people who are calling me every five minutes say, can you come on at this hour, at this hour, at this hour, at this hour, at this hour to be our in-house Fox basher? Um, is really incredible. I'm sure you've had some experience with this yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm not saying I'm not going to say anything more about it, but I just, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm being too cute. Uh, I just put it, you know, thought I'd acknowledge the elephant in the room. I know that uh, the Goldbergian um, moratorium on compliments, and I will, I will try to tread this line very carefully. Tread... Um, Tread lightly, counselor. I know. I, I, I know. say in my law and order voice. I know. The uh, I'll allow it. Um, the challenge in these things is, you know, I, I'll, let me just speak. I'll do it this way. I'll speak for myself. I am so happy for the chance to have worked at Fox. I am so grateful for the opportunity that it gave me the resources, the wonderful people, the platform, all of those things. Truly great. Um, And I wouldn't change a thing. Um, But I understood as time marched on at Fox, and you and Steve addressed this, and you've addressed this in uh, what you wrote together and what you wrote yourself, which is every year, next year was going to be the year that things got better, right? Every year, next year, well, next year, when, when su- such and so changes, when this happens, 
when Rogers gone, well, no, when Rupert's gone, no, when, no, when, no, when, no, when, no, when. And what, what I realized over time was that I loved my job. And of course you and I had similar experience in the sense that working in Washington and the people with whom we worked and the shows that we went on and the stuff that we did, we were protected from a lot of the true weirdness. And we were protected from a lot of the slouchy standards. And we were protected from a lot of the long slide over the past four or five years. Um, and the coming to turn, it was so hard for me to imagine myself after Fox because it had been such a big part of my life for 10 years. And then as soon as it was over, it didn't touch me anymore. It didn't have that effect. It wasn't the center of my life. And when people are like, oh, you know, do you want to say this about Fox? Do you want to come on and talk about this? about?" And it's like, no, I've said what I need to say about it. I had something to say, and now I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have more to say. And, and look, and one of the reasons why I felt it necessary to, to leave was that I felt like I couldn't say things um, because I was obliged not to while I was taking money from them. And, um, and I'd skirted this a few times, you know, I got into pissing matches with Hannity in the past and I get the calls or my agents would get the calls about no pissing inside the tent and yada, yada, yada. And, um, I, I remember tweeting out a Trish Regan <laughs> segment where she does this incredible purple prose thing. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes where she's like, as the country is torn apart by race riots and people wanting to topple the very fabric of our republic, we have not seen a threat as grave as this since perhaps the Civil War. And here to talk to us about it is master strategist Steve Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I could not restrain myself and I tweeted something about it and I got a call. Like, why are you doing this? So anyway, I mean, like... I. As as you know, like um, I'm less the cephologist than you are. I'm a, I, but I'm concerned a lot about conservatism and stuff. And when Fox has that kind of outsized role, like not being able to like freely comment on stuff that Tucker's saying or stuff that conservatives are saying on on Fox was just sort of a problem for me. And and the Patriot Purge thing was a thing too far. But um, but I just don't want to be. Like the, 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 the fact that I was the number one trending thing, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that is no comment on me whatsoever. That is a comment on this sort of the sick obsession that people have with, with admittedly Fox's outsized role in our culture. And like, much like Trump, Trump was really horrible for all sorts of constitutional and democratic norms. And one of the things that was the purest evidence of his damage to constitutional democratic norms was the way in which his opponents felt justified in doing damage to democratic and constitutional 100%, norms. And a hundred percent. And I, and, and so like, again, I'm an, I'll like, literally I can never go on TV again, unless I'm willing to talk about some of this stuff on TV again, because that's the only thing they're going to talk about. Want to ask yeah, me yeah, about for it a while. But, yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, I gotta say it was, I remember I was talking to Steve at a, I, I was um, parked at a rest area in the mountains outside of Spokane on my way to Seattle. And a couple of hookers in the trunk, just rolling. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I will have you know, sir, that neither Zoe nor Pippa are hookers. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm sorry, the term is escort. Uh, no, but if you had said, you know, with my <laughs> in the car, it would have been technically <laughs> that would be right. True. But that'd, be would've, true. Would've, that'd be true. It would have hit right. the ear a little harsh. So that's right. Anyway, uh, and like Steve was like, I cannot tell you how unbelievably jealous I am of you right now because like I spent 72 hours where I had no cell reception for large swaths of the day, driving through like Montana and whatnot. And, you know, and people are like trying to get me on the phone and will you come on CNN at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or 9 a.m.? And I was like, no, I literally can't. And, um, and that was kind of great. You were, you were smart to do it. I made it. I made a serious mistake against my better judgment. I took the advice of a guy who was going to be my agent. And uh, I, MSNBC invited me to come on. I wrote a piece for the LA Times about leaving about what was wrong with cable news and it went to the top of the charts it was a big everybody it was it was great it was very gratifying to see it discussed and repeated and all of this stuff and uh chris hayes's producer said we'd like you to come on and talk about this and i was like i don't know guys going on cable <laughs> news to talk about what's wrong with cable news may be a mistake and this guy who was going to represent me was like, hey, look, either you want to be on TV or, you know, you either want you either want to get hired or you don't want to get hired. And I was like, well, I do like having shoes. So, OK, <laughs> I'll do it. And what happened? I went on and Chris Hayes was awful. He was he was the turd and it was terrible. And your decision to be and of course, also in my case, I didn't want to talk about what they wanted to talk about, right? I didn't want to talk about that stuff. Um, but so much of the media industrial complex is devoted to one outlet crapping on another outlet and saying that they are superior to that outlet. Dear Jonah, come on our crappy outlet to talk about how crappy the other outlet was is not the kind of dude you are. Um, and I'm going to try to stay that way. Um, the only other thing I would say is uh, it was... I mean, I'll talk more about this, I guess, in the solo remnant, so we don't, I don't have to give, give up all of my notes. It's just, I, I how to put this, like, so, like, you know, everything's blowing up, text messages, DMs, people are attacking me or praising me, and Steve, and yada, 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 and everyone's got their hot takes on all this kind of stuff, and it's trending, and all that, and, um, and there I am in, like, the desert, uh, walking my dogs or like at a rest stop picking up my dog's boop. And then I end up seeing family and no one knew. I mean, either the, no one, the family knew about some of this stuff, but no one cared. Right. And so it's like the, the, the amount of projection that you get from people who think that like, this is as big a deal for us, you know, for me, you know, for you, as 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 they imagine it to be is just kind of weird and the dis so it was really nice it was just sort of like like disconnected from being not connected to dc not being there was extremely helpful in reminding myself that a lot of this is just bs you know and um it's all light shows for a very sort of select group in a bubble that takes this stuff way too seriously you know? that's right and i i also think we will look back 10 years from now or 15 years from now, and we'll be able to say that there was a period of time where Fox became a hegemon inside the American right, that it was, su it, it was such a center of gravity. And the reason it was such a center of gravity, and we have research that backs this up, it was such a center of gravity because everybody on the right 
watched Fox to some degree because there was a variety of. Uh, there were a variety of voices available to be heard. You could listen to Charles Krauthammer. You could listen to George Will. You could listen to you. You could listen to me. But you could also listen to, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich. You could also listen to. There was a a panoply of uh, voices that were on Fox, and Fox aimed to represent that cross section. Um, and that was an interesting. That was an interesting project, and probably a worthwhile one. Um, but if it's just one thing, if it's just one voice, then who cares? And I think the other thing is cable news as a entity, as an entity, is done for. And I, it, it, is it five years or is it 10 years? I don't know. Um, but given what we know about court cutting and how people consume media and all of these other things, you know, this is, I, I think we are, we're certainly at the end of an era uh, and I think we will mark part of the end of the era with your departure, right? Your departure is another another milestone, right? Firing George Will, uh, 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 the departure of me and Bill Salmon. Like we could think of a number of 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 way 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 marks along the way, but yours is a big one. Where it's how long were you at Fox? Eleven years. Yeah. Okay. So you were at Fox for a long time, and now you're not. And that will that will be marked as as another moment where we say goodbye to that period where Fox was a unifying part uh, of the American right or uh, a common space and is a, a, a monoculture. Yeah. Oh, actually, twelve years. Sorry. Um, um, so when we were talking before we started recording, um you mentioned that you had some issues with your landlord and there were some ambient sound issues that were problematic. And I don't know, cause Caleb being the wonder producer that he is, maybe he, will maybe he can buff out. that out. Yeah. 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 But as you started talking about, you know, uh, uh, weighty things about Fox's, you know, once unifying role, it's not a sitar, but there's that weird, um, <laughs> Indian, it, it, that's what it sounded like. It doesn't sound like construction stuff. It sounded like, um, Ravi Shankar playing something and, uh, or getting warmed up. Um, um, anyway, we, we shall discuss all of this more, uh, Anon, I am sure. Um, but I've kept you very long. You've been very generous. Uh, and since you're wrapping up, I, I will go ahead and say it. I'm really proud to work with you. I'm really proud to be your friend. Uh, and I'm really proud to be part of the dispatch because, uh, independence and, uh, is important and uh, and intellectual honesty is important. So thank you for doing what you did. Thank you, Chris. And you have now used up your quota. To Understood. At least Happy Hanukkah, twenty twenty two. Delighted that we could open up the uh, strategic pundit reserve, even though we um, we we did a we did a fair amount of punditry here, not a, not an excessive amount of punditry. Sneaky. We snuck it in here and there. We did. We did. It was like, um, it was like, it was the curly fry that makes it into the bag of traditional fries. And you don't know how it got there. Um, and, uh, shout out to Arby's. Grateful to have you as a colleague. Great to have you as a friend. And, um, thanks for doing this. And, um, and yes, happy Hanukkah, my non Hebraic friend. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay. So, uh, thanks to, uh, brother Steyerwalt for, uh, helping me uh, ease back into podcasting from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's kind of nice, you know, I'm done with my podcasting work at 9 a.m. Um, 
And uh, and again, thank again, thank you to everybody who's offered support and encouragement and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I'll walk through more of this later in the week, or certainly eventually. Um, but I'm doing fine. Uh, I say this both to the supporters and the haters out there. I'm fine. Uh, and the theorizing about you know what's going on. Um, is uh, often misplaced and I'm trying not to like get distracted by all that. And um, I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It was just fantastic to hang out with my daughter. This is one of her favorite places in the world. And um, it would have been nice if we weren't here during the uh, monsoon season, which is not quite right because it's, it's, it's it's not blustery or windy weather here. It's just, um, almost constant drizzle punctuated by heavy rain and then brief moments of hope, uh, punctuated by more rain. Um, but it's still one of the most beautiful, wonderful places in the world. And I'm grateful to have it and had a wonderful time with family, which is what you're supposed to do over Thanksgiving. So, uh, not sure who we're having on later in the week. Um, and not sure exactly when I'm getting on the road because this is contingent partly on um, how things go with my wife's project. But um, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a freaking podcast. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.